Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. You're about to hear from an eyewitness to history, someone who experienced firsthand one of our nation's darkest periods, the McCarthy era when free speech and the right of dissent were under attack. It's a story told with humor, grace, passion, and optimism by Al Martyr, now in his 90s, a lifelong communist, labor, civil rights, and peace activist. He's interviewed by Connecticut Explored assistant publisher Mary Donahue, author of A Life of Conviction in the spring 2016 issue of Connecticut Explored. Mary and Al are joined by Judge Andrew Rohrabach, cousin of Martyr's defense lawyer, the late celebrated civil rights attorney Catherine Rohrabach. This episode is condensed from a longer program held at the New Haven Museum on April 14, 2016. An unedited version with additional material is available in Extended Episode 7 of Grading the Nutmeg. I want to introduce our two guests. El Martyr, as I think everybody in New Haven probably knows, is a lifelong Communist Party member. He's advocated for justice, equality, and world peace for more than seven decades, which just is amazing. He's a lifelong New Haven resident. He remains a community activist, and he currently serves as the president of the Amistad Committee, the chairman of the Connecticut Freedom Trail, and the president of the U.S. Peace Council. He's a World War II veteran and received the Bronze Star and is a University of Connecticut alum. Judge Andrew Orbeck earned a BA from Yale University and his law degree from the University of Virginia's Law School. He was a member of the General Assembly for 18 years and serves now as a Superior Court Judge since 2013. He worked as a partner at the family law firm of Rohrbeck and Rohrbeck, which was founded by his great-grandfather. He is a cousin of, of Catherine Rohrbeck, the celebrated civil rights attorney who served as Mr. Martyr's defense attorney during New Haven's Smith trial. I want to take a moment and set the stage for today's program. We're going to focus on New Haven's Smith trial from 1954 to 56. This is a huge topic. But today's program benefits from Al's firsthand account of FBI surveillance, phone taps, fear, and loss of employment due to his arrest. In 1940, Congress passed the Alien Registration Act, which was known as the Smith Act. It required all non-citizen adult residents to register with the government, and it made it a crime, quote, to knowingly or willfully advocate with duty, necessity, desirability, of overthrowing or destroying any government in the United States by force or violence with the intent to cause the overthrow or destruction of any government in the United States, unquote. This is part of what's referred to as the second Red Scare, fear of communism that permeated American politics, culture, and society from the late 40s through the 50s during the opening phases of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. This episode of political repression lasted longer and was more pervasive than the Red Scare that followed the Bolshevik Re Revolution in World War I. 
popularly known as McCarthyism after Senator Joseph McCarthy, who made himself famous in 1950 by claiming that large numbers of communists had infiltrated the U.S. State Department, the second Red Scare predated and outlasted McCarthy. Nevertheless, McCarthyism became the label for the tactic of undermining political opponents by making unsubstantiated attacks on their loyalty to the United States. During the first Red Scare, an anti-radicalism division was formed within the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. The American Communist Party was founded in 1919. The CPUSA remained small until the Great Depression, a huge economic crisis, and the rise of European fascism in the 1930s also helped to increase its appeal. During the Great Depression, party members worked to organize industrial and agricultural workers and to boldly denounce lynching, poll taxes, and other aspects of segregation and white supremacy. In 1938, the CPUSA had about 75,000 members. The party was part of a dynamic of, the broad, of that broader left in the 1930s and 40s that advanced the cause of labor, minority rights, and feminism. The first post-World War II Smith trial was in New York City. This was followed by the so-called second-tier cities, over a dozen cities, including New Haven. The Associated Press had covered the trial, and it made news. When I discovered that Al's attorney was Catherine Rohrbeck, I couldn't imagine a brighter or more formidable team. So now let's talk to our guests. What were those major influences on you when you were growing up, and how did you become politically active? Because we had a little store, at that time, organizations would come around with posters <laughs> and give you a poster and they would give you two tickets to come to an event. Well, there was an event, there was a, a theater performance of the famous actor Will Gear. In the 30s, he was extremely well, well, well known. And it, it was a labor play. It dealt with Southern workers trying to organize. I went to that play, and I became fascinated with the story. And it didn't take long that I asked to join. At that time, I was a, in, at Hill House, a sophomore. But there were other factors. There was the Spanish loyalists fighting to maintain their the Republican government in, in Spain. Hitler was already on the uh, agenda, as was Mussolini, and the Japanese had invaded Manchuria. And as a 14-year-old boy, this became my milieu. This became a factor in my thinking. I wanted to join any force at that point that would be fighting against fascism, fighting for democracy in Spain, etc. I was too young to join the Communist Party, so I joined the Young Communist League. At that point, they were disorganizing the trade union movement in New Haven. There was the, the craft unions, the painters, the plumbers, the electricians, the printers. But the sergeants in the New Haven Clock Company and the American Steel, all these industrial 
factories were not organized. So I volunteered to hand out flyers in the morning. In Hill House, we organized the Peace Council. And all through that period, there were lynchings down south. And we organized vigils and demonstrations protesting what was going on. Two things stayed with me very early. One was the famous saying of, of the famous African-American Frederick Douglass. Power doesn't exceed anything without a struggle. And the other, that Karl Marx, the famous communist, said, white labor can never be free if black labor is in chains. Those two mottos are my lifelong mottos, without which I, my country cannot provide for its people, cannot be more just. What was it like to be a Communist Party organizer in New Haven in the early 1950s? I spent the four years, of course, going into the army. And I must say this. There was a, a detente in the air. The American people were no longer frightened of communists, and they were no longer frightened of the Soviet Union, the first socialist country in, in the world. And as the war proceeded, these were allies. When I start, came back, we began to realize that the atmosphere was changing. There was Harry Truman, who practically undid all the goodwill that Roosevelt had established with the socialist world. And so what happened nationally, of course, we all know. Those were the, the most shameful period in the history of the United States. They began to look for communists in Hollywood. And some of the most distinguished actors and actresses and directors were blacklisted jailed. They then jailed the national leadership of the Communist Party. And during that atmosphere, those of us who were working in Connecticut heard that there may be a roundup of all communists. And so we decided to go underground. So I left my family and assumed a new name went to New York, and because I had no longer lived, worked at the, uh, the Communist Party, I had to find a new trade, so I had to go to Boardman Trade. I learned how to become a printer, and I secured a job there under a different name, under a union. What it was to be an organizer at that point, I think people had the wrong idea of what we were doing, what communists were doing. The communist movement is a native movement comes out of many years of workers fighting for a, 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 good, a secure job and wages. It's a, it's, a, it's a movement of working people for a more, a more just and secure society. And, and I, I must interrupt myself by saying I want to thank the museum, I want to thank the Connecticut Explorer for being bold enough, for being bold enough to initiate a dialogue, especially in this time of an election, 
where someone who calls themselves a, a democratic socialist has once again brought that name to the surface. Where for workers and ordinary wage earners to be able to take political power for, their, for the common good. Simple, just simple. It was a very difficult period as an organizer because we're all human and we become frightened and fearful. And once the trials began in New York, the Smith Act, and then I should not forget the Rosenberg trial where two people were executed, created an atmosphere where suddenly the word communism was equal to be calling a spy and a traitor. And most of the attention at that point was devoted to the struggle for civil rights and justice. The attack on the trade union movement took place with the Taft-Hartley bill, and little by little the, the trade union movement began to shrink from 35 million during the war to what it is now about 11 million people. And so it was very difficult. Tremendous stress and tension. You knew that the two people who in the car downstairs were there just to intimidate you. The two people who wait, waited for you to come off the train from work were there hoping that you would talk to them. The telephones tapped constantly, threats on the telephone, raids by the police pretending that you had called them, but you knew that they had plotted this themselves to come into the house, terrorize your children, terrorize. And this, this was the atmosphere. And what they succeeded in doing is frightening all our allies. Not everyone belonged to the Communist Party. It was comparatively small in this large country. But many people believed in equality, believed in justice, believed in the rights of workers. And it made it almost impossible to reach them. You, uh, you went underground, you used the name Ken Green yes. to, hopefully to stay employed for, to support your family, and then you were arrested at your home in New Haven on Memorial Day weekend in 1954 for violation of the Smith Act. And the news of your arrest, plus six other individuals, was actually announced by J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI. Just prior, prior to that, I had secured a, a job in New York uh, and a print shop, and I was fired for trying to organize it into the union. The union allowed me to take a test from an apprentice to become a journeyman, and I became a journeyman printer under the name of Kenneth Green. Owners of shops would go to the union and say, we need two people or five people, and the, the union would assign them. They sent me to Stanford, Connecticut. One day, I had met the, had a, 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 an appointment with, to meet 
the former head of the Communist Party of Connecticut in Stamford, Connecticut. And we were walking to get a cup of coffee, and a woman whom we knew had been, as a student member of the Young Communist League, began shouting, spies, spies. And the, so the Stanford police came and arrested us. Uh, uh, no, didn't arrest us, took us in. And they called the FBI and said, we've got two accused spies here. And the Connecticut press immediately picked that up. The FBI said you couldn't hold them, they hadn't done anything. I had been voted the shop steward of, of that shop, and I had to go back and face the workers who were convinced that I was a spy and explained to him that I wasn't Kenneth Green, that I was Al Martin. If anything that I've done in my entire life, that's the only thing I regret. I have always been Al Martin. I can no longer stay at that shop. And I secured a job at, of all places, a Republican-controlled newspaper, Westport News. And, and the owners of the Westport News made it very clear to the workers and to me that I had every right for that job. It was a union shop, the union had sent me, I had every right. Soon thereafter, there were the arrests. One Saturday morning, I was, had an apron on, I was cleaning the apartment. The bell rang downstairs, and there they were, the FBI with their guns to arrest me. But that, of course, began the, the struggle for justice. And I assumed the task of trying to get legal defense. But it was more than just getting a lawyer. It was also to try to show that this was a contradiction to the very principles on which our country was founded. To write to dissent, the right to appeal to people to change the society. That this is basic to democracy. So the search for a lawyer was part of that struggle. One of the newspaper articles said that uh, Alice quoted as sending out a hundred mimeograph letters to law firms to try to find attorneys. But the background to this was in the 1949 case in New York City, all five of the defense attorneys were sent to uh, jail on, on charges of contempt for 30 to 60 days. So, and then two of them were disbarred and it ruined, their, it ruined most of their careers. The newspaper says that six of the, of the eight defendants had court-appointed attorneys. You had Catherine Rohrbeck, who we're gonna speak about in a minute. And then the, the other, you had a union attorney that represented one of the defendants, right? Yes, thank God. At the end of this trial, they had over two million words in the transcript and 9,000 pages. So this was a long 10-month trial. Now, in your defense, you always maintained that it wasn't illegal to be a communist and that the First Amendment protected your right to free speech. What kinds of evidence did the prosecution have? I must tell you, I was very, very sorry for the jury. 
Because one would think that the prosecution was going to show some acts that we had done, some deeds that we had said, or even some words that we had uttered that somehow would be illegal. But imagine seven months of quoting the, the Marxist-Leninist literature. Now, I don't know if any of you have ventured to read any of it. <laughs> what they did is they brought ex-communists, informants, who would say there was a class, and they quoted this paragraph. And based upon this paragraph, it's evident that they support revolution or they support violence. Our lawyers didn't understand it. The jury was unable to understand it. And to sit seven months and listen to this was quite a burden. What was on trial? Ideas, not people, in the United States of America. You have to really experience it to know what happens when the whole power of the state, the state government, the national government, and the local government is aimed at you. Your boyhood friends cross the street because they don't want to say hello to you. Your neighbors don't say hello anymore. Ultimately, Al, you happened to be acquitted. They had one person they couldn't decide on, so he was basically acquitted because they couldn't decide. But five of the defendants were convicted. Now, that, was, that ruling was reversed by the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. And I think this is interesting. It was reversed because there was, quote, no direct evidence introduced by the government to prove that the defendant's advocacy of the violent overthrow of the U.S. government Unquote. And Connecticut, I think we should be proud of the fact that they, the, that decision was reversed. Yes. In some of the other states, people did serve jail time. Let me turn to my other guest, Judge Rohrbeck. You come from such a distinguished, both legal and political family, and although Catherine's father was a, was a minister, could you just tell us a little bit about the background for this young woman attorney who took Al's case? What uh, is interesting about Al's attorney is that she was actually graduated from Yale Law School in 1948, and over the past couple of days, I've been listening to a recording of her memorial service at which many of her friends recounted some of her accomplishments. She died in 2007. And what I learned was that on May Day in 1949, yes. there had been a picnic of the Communist Party in New Haven, uh, which was disrupted by a group of marauding thugs, for lack of a better uh, expression. And that resulted, of course, in the arrest of the members of the Communist Party, uh, who were arraigned and placed on very high bonds. And one of Catherine's first achievements as a very fresh lawyer was to argue that the bond should be reduced, which she evidently did successfully, and which she uh, remembered as one of the high points of her early career. Catherine, in 1955, Catherine's grandfather had been a member of the Connecticut Supreme Court her great uncle had been the chairman of the Republican Party in Connecticut from 1912 till 1937, and her uncle was practicing law in Canaan. So she was the 
third generation of her family to be practicing law. And her family had actually been about the business of practicing law for 83 years at the time she took on Al's case. And I think, uh, I guess you might nowadays refer to her, at least on facially on paper, as being a member of the establishment. Um, <laughs> uh, but that having been said, um, there's no better uh, evidence of her willingness to put herself in harm's way than her uh, desire. I'm sure it wasn't, she probably didn't agree to take on your defense reluctantly. My guess is, deep within her, she was eager uh, to do the job of a lawyer and yes. to provide you uh, with a defense. And, I, and perhaps we can only speculate if she didn't feel a degree of insulation from some of the political pressures by virtue of her pedigree. I want to just read you some of information about Catherine. And there is a wonderful, on the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame website, there's a wonderful 10-minute videotape of Catherine talking about her career when she was inducted into the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame. She studied law with the renowned constitutional law scholar Thomas Emerson. He is one of the lawyers that triumphed at the Scottborough Voice Trial. He helped secure their freedom, and that is a really pivotal case. So he, had a, he was a wonderful person for her to study with. She was the only woman in her graduating class at Yale Law School in 1948. <laughs> she, she opened her practice in New Haven at 42 Church Street, and she went on to represent Planned Parenthood. She was a co-founder of the Connecticut Civil Liberties Union, and then these are the kind of people that she defended. Pacifists, feminists, conscientious objectors, communists, and then she was the lead counsel in challenging Connecticut's anti-abortion statutes. In 1971, here in New Haven, she defended Erica Huggins, one of the accused in the New Haven Black Panthers trial. Another uh, tidbit was that uh, when it was fashionable for people to go get the FBI files that had been compiled about them during this period, uh, many of Catherine's contemporaries and friends went down to Washington and with great pride made copies of the hundreds of pages that the FBI had assembled about them. Catherine went to get to her file and there was one page in it. It said, no need to worry, she's from a fine family. <laughs> so I guess uh, she did trade a little bit on the... Uh, the, the reputations for good or for evil uh, of her forebears. But uh, I, I'd like to invite my dad, Char Charlie Rohrbeck, to come up. He was a first-year law student at Yale Law School uh, when these trials were ongoing, and he's always told me that he made his way to the courthouse to observe the proceedings. And um, Just a couple of quick observations. Uh, in law school, we did go down and, and watch the trial from time to time. I might have gone a half dozen times, spent two or three hours there observing uh, the, the process, and it was a, an amazing show. If you can imagine, uh, there were eight lawyers or more, uh, eight defendants. All the lawyers were vying for attention and, and trying to get the, the eye of the jury and the judge. Catherine had one tremendous advantage. She was the only woman. So <laughs> she did not have to uh, work quite as hard at it. But the, the other memory I have, and Al, you, you uh, totally uh, have uh, confirmed that is her defensive view was based primarily on the law of evidence. And uh, during that trial, the times that I watched, 
while all the other lawyers were very rhetorical and very verbal, um, Catherine was very studied and very legal and making objections to some of these uh, documents that you spoke of that they tried to use to uh, convict you. And uh, she would not only object, but she would have cases to cite and reasoning to back them up and her objections would be sustained. And I'm sure not only did that help you, but that probably helped the other defendants who were committed, uh, convicted on appeal because I expect if you read that case, there probably would have been some evidentiary stuff. So that's my brief recollection. Great, thank you. One of the consequences of Catherine's representation of Al was during that period, 1955-56, uh, she reported that there were only six members of the New Haven Bar who would associate with her or speak to her or acknowledge her. So she did pay a price in terms of uh, her social uh, standing amongst the bar, and she said she never forgot who those six people were and always held them uh, in the highest regard. Al, did you take the stand in your own defense? Did you testify at the trial, or did you no, leave it to not. the... No, I did not. I, I, I took umbrage, actually, of my lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> in the end, it worked out, though, right? <laughs> I, I must tell you, I was hurt. <laughs> I took it subjectively as if they didn't think I was capable of doing it. <laughs> Thank you all for coming, and I want to thank our guests so much. Thanks for listening. Hear the full interview with Al Martyr and Judge Warabak in Episode 7 Extended and more stories about Connecticut history in upcoming episodes. We wish to thank Al Martyr, Judge Andrew Rohrabach, Charles Rohrabach, and the New Haven Museum. Join Connecticut Explored at its next live event, An Evening with David Gerber, author of The Inventor's Dilemma, The Remarkable Life of H. Joseph Gerber, May 10, 2016, 5 p.m. in the Hartford History Center at Hartford Public Library. And the next conversation's at noon at Connecticut's Old State House, May 24th, for Gaining Religious Equality for Jews, the 1843 Petition, featuring Mary Donahue, me, and the University of Hartford's Dr. Bilal Dabir Sakal. Find out more about these programs at ctexplore.org slash events. To read stories featured in Grading the Nutmeg and to subscribe to Connecticut Explored or purchase the current or a back issue, visit ctexplored.org.